As I have uh, said to uh, quite a few people this morning, uh, this is one of those Sundays where we separate the wheat from the chaff um, in in the Bible. I'm sure many of you came and go, oh, surely they're going to have this thing on the inside. Um, The problem is once you get it all set up on the outside and then it begins to drizzle, um, you can't get it all set back up on the inside in time uh, to do so. so I'm going to I'm going to do my best uh to make sure the preaching is hot this morning so that you hopefully stay warm and if you just can't take it um uh the, the cool weather outside you, you will not hurt my feelings if you uh if you leave but I'm going to I'm going to stand out from under here this morning and we're going to do the best um that we can um and it's just funny that one of the main topics for today is the sovereignty of God and his sovereignty over the weather so uh, thank you, Jesus, for being funny. Um, all right, here we go. My name is Daniel. I am one of the elders and pastors here at Alathia Church. And for the last year and a half or so, we have put out before you something we've called the One Campaign. And the tagline for the One Campaign is Each One Reach One. And we have emphasized to you having one person in your life that you are intentionally investing time and in. you are intentionally building a relationship with, you are intentionally praying for them, you are intentionally doing everything you can to share the gospel with them because you believe that God has put you in their life to see them become a follower of Jesus. And it's been really cool as the one campaign has taken place just in my community group alone We've baptized three people over the last few months, and we have two more people who are ready to be baptized. And so we have seen, just over a short period of time, our efforts reaching into people's lives. God be faithful to answer our prayers. And the reason we've made this emphasis, or part of the reason we've made this emphasis, is because the Bible tells us that God puts all men and all women and all children in all places at all times, specifically determining where they live and where they are. And we know part of that purpose is so that we can share the gospel with people. And so we want you to intentionally invest your lives in people and those who are in your organic spheres of influence, your friends, your relatives, your associates, your your neighbors, your, your coworkers, wherever God might have you in this life. But we also know that as part of this one campaign, Um, there's a lot of nervousness that often goes with trying to share your faith with someone. I I heard it said this last week, uh, evangelism can be defined this way, two very nervous people having a conversation, right? The the Christian trying to share their faith and and the non-Christian going, oh my gosh, is this Christian about to share their faith with me, right? So evangelism can be this very nerve-wracking thing. But, but I think one of the reasons we, we make it so nerve-wracking is because we don't understand how the process of salvation actually takes place. We don't actually understand who is responsible for salvation in the moment. And too often we put the pressure on ourselves and going, oh man, if I would have just said this word, oh, if I could have just said this thing, if I would have just answered the argument this way, then this person would have become a follower of Jesus. So when we look at the equation of salvation, and there's supposed to be a big TV screen right here that has this up on the screen for you this morning. So I'm really hoping you can get this and maybe take some notes because this was a very note-dependent sermon. 
um, you will see that the equation of salvation has this. There's God's part. There's our part as the one sharing our faith. And there's their part, the one who is receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ as we are proclaiming the gospel to him, to them. And so what I want us to see and what where we're going to focus most of our time and attention today is on God's part in this role of salvation, salvation through the story of the book of Jonah in Jonah chapter 3. So I've titled this sermon, Sovereign God, Holy God, Merciful God. These are three giant attributes we are going to see in the sermon today as we are in Jonah chapter 3. Now, before we get there, let me recap for you where we've been or get you caught up if this is your first Sunday with us in the book of Jonah. So the Bible tells us that the word of the Lord, the word of Yahweh came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. So there's this guy named Jonah. He's a prophet. He's recorded as a prophet in other texts of Scripture. And God says, go tell these people to, re to repent of their sin because their evil has come up before me. And Jonah, like any good prophet would do, went the exact opposite way that God told him to go. God said, go right. Jonah went left. God said, go east. Jonah went west. And so one of the questions we have to ask ourselves, like, why? I mean, because Jonah was used to proclaiming the word of the Lord. He was used to telling people, repent of your sin. This wasn't a new thing. Why did Jonah go the other way? And it's because Jonah hated the people of Nineveh. And you're going to see this next week in chapter 4. Jonah hated the people of Nineveh, and he actually had good reason in his flesh to hate the people of Nineveh. Because for many, many years, um, for many, many years, the people of Nineveh had severely oppressed beaten and tortured the people of Israel. The best equivalent we would have in our country, in our understanding, was at the height of the Civil War and in the middle of, you know, 1850, 1860. This would have been the equivalent of God telling a free black man in the Union States to go down to the port in New Orleans where they're bringing in slaves, and I want you to go to them, and I want you to tell them that it's a great evil what they're doing and to repent of their sins. And so you would have understood this man would have had uh, much hatred in his heart, most likely, and he would have been deserved hatred in his flesh because he had been oppressed for so long. He had seen his people oppressed for so long in this country that he would not have wanted people to repent of their sins. This is a very natural reaction that we would have over generations of oppression. And so Jonah did not like the Ninevites in any way, shape, or form. And so he is called to go, and he goes the exact opposite way, believing that he can completely thwart God's plan of bringing salvation to this people. The next few verses in verses 4 through 6, I like to title, Disobedience Sets Sail. Jonah gets on a ship with a bunch of guys and goes the opposite way that God tells him to go. 
And God sends a storm upon the sea that's so bad that the ship was about to break up and sink. They start crying out to their gods. They start throwing all the cargo overboard. And the whole time, Jonah is asleep down in the belly of the ship. Now, this is a great example of what we like to do with the sin in our lives, right? We, we, we know there's some sin in our lives, and we like to see what we can do to stuff it down. So Jonah thinks he can actually go into the belly of this ship, that he can, he can sleep this one off, just kind of ignore it, and this will all the storm will just pass over. And it's, it's kind of the equivalent of trying to hold a beach ball under the water. You know, you can do it for a little bit, but eventually the beach ball is going to slip out from under the water. It's going to pop up out of the water. And it's going to hit you right in the nose, okay? And so this is what takes place on this ship. And so finally, Jonah confesses that he is the reason this is happening. And you should know, and we should see in this story, that Jonah's sin does, does not affect only him. Even when we stuff sin down, it does not affect just us. It affects all of those around us, and it is affecting all of these men's lives and their well-being while they are on the water. And in one last attempt to escape the calling of God on his life, to go and to call the Ninevites to repent, Jonah says, hey, it's me, throw me overboard. He gets thrown into the water, and a fish comes, swallows Jonah, and what is probably the greatest use of the disciplinary timeout in world history, Jonah gets three days to think about his poor decision in the belly of the great fish. And just in case you're wondering, is this a real story? We'll say one, Jesus references that it as a real story. And two, there are actually historical accounts of people being swallowed by fish, being, uh, being spit up on the shore. You can go and uh, research that on the Google, okay? So um, we, we did so in my gospel community group a few weeks ago, and we read the stories. So now we're at this place where Jonah has been spit out of the mouth of the great fish, and he is making his way finally toward the city of Nineveh. And we see in chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, okay? So this is a repeat we see from chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. Now we see again, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. Now, I don't know that we can adequately grasp in our mind what is taking place in this city. I mean, this is a city that was known for how evil it was, for oppressing people. And in this moment, you have a complete total salvation of about 150 to 175,000 people. So, and it happens over a span of a very short amount of time, less than 40 days. So just imagine, imagine with me for a moment that between now and the end of the semester, when some of you are going to graduate, 
when some of you can be dealt with another grueling semester, we're about 40 days out, the entire city of Gainesville and all of its people, from the youngest to the oldest, all repent of their sin to the point that they walk around in sackcloth and ashes because they are so convicted by their sin that the entire city over the next 40 days becomes completely devoted followers of Jesus. I can't even fathom what that would be like. That would be the most amazing thing any of us had ever seen or experienced. And that is exactly what takes place here in Jonah chapter 3. Now, as we look at this story, as we look at this salvation that takes place, I told you that salvation has three parts. There's God's part, there's my part, and there's their part. Well, when it comes to God's part in this story, the three big things I want to point out to you is the sovereignty of God, the holiness of God, and the mercy of God. Now, we're going to talk about the sovereignty of God here for a moment. Um, This is a topic that humans love to debate, yet is completely settled in the Bible. Rather than defining it for you this morning, I'm just going to read for you a small sample of verses of how the Bible talks about the sovereignty of God. And just in case you're wondering what sovereignty is, that's saying God has complete reign and control over all things and all circumstances. In Isaiah 45, 7 through 9, God says this, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am Yahweh who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. Now, if you're familiar with the the Bible at all, surely you can hear the echo of this passage ringing in the words of Paul in Romans chapter 9. This is one of the, the, the texts that people struggle with the most because it's about God's sovereign choice. And it says, Paul quotes in Scripture, he says, God says, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, that before the twins were born or done anything wrong, I had chosen to establish Jacob. He goes on to bring out the story of Pharaoh, and God says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And he anticipates the response or the objection from the people reading this letter, and they say, Well, then then how can God find fault with us if God has determined these things? And Paul says, who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Does the potter not have the right to take some pieces of clay for noble purposes and some for ignoble purposes? One of the greatest passages to wrestle with in all of the Bible. Yet God completely and repeatedly um, 
claims over and over that he is sovereign over all things. But yet we try to excuse it away for him when God is saying, no, don't don't make excuses for me. I'm claiming all these things. You don't have to talk around this. Just claim it as I have actually said it is. And so this, this leads us naturally to the question is, well, just how sovereign is God? Because right now we're kind of talking about in the context of salvation maybe, but is God really sovereign over all things? Well, the scripture declares in Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Let me put this to you in, in modern terms. Every roll of the dice at every craps table in every casino around the world is determined by God. That's what Scripture says. Now, we might find it weird to put our faith in the roll of the dice. But did you know the disciples did this exact thing? That after Judas had hung himself, when it came to selecting the new 12th disciple, Even after fasting and praying about it, they couldn't make a decision. So what did they do? They cast the lots. Doesn't seem very spiritual, does it? That someone will be decided to be the 12th disciple by the rolling of the dice. But the disciples had enough faith in God that he even determined the casting of the lots. And so if you read what the Bible says about the sovereignty of God in passages like Hebrews 2.8, where it says, Even though everything seems out of control, everything is in fact in control and subject to King Jesus. When you read these passages and come to accept them, you can only come to the place that Job himself came to in Job chapter 42 verse 2 when he declared to God, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. The Bible declares from beginning to end that God is sovereign over all things. God is especially sovereign over salvation. And what we have seen so far in the book of Jonah is the extent to how how much God is sovereign, right? God tells Jonah to go and to proclaim this message because he is going to bring about salvation to the Ninevites. Jonah tries to go the other way. So what does God do? He is sovereign over the storm that comes upon the sea. Jonah, once again, tries to get away. God is sovereign over a fish. He brings a fish from the deep to snag Jonah, to then steer this fish and to spit him up on the land where he is supposed to go, saying to Jonah, nice try. And as you are going to see, and as we have seen in today's story, God is sovereign over the hearts of an entire city that is full of evil. God is completely and totally sovereign. And I I will just tell you, as one who has wrestled this subject for two decades now and has discussed this subject for two two decades now, I, I understand how uncomfortable this subject is. But I promise you, if you will just keep wrestling with it and eventually submit to it, it is actually the most comforting idea in the whole world. That God is completely and totally sovereign over our lives 
working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes in Christ Jesus. The second aspect of God I want to point out to you this morning is that God is holy. I want to tell you that only God is holy. And the main idea behind holiness is separation. The word actually means to cut. It actually means to to separate from one another. And so when we hear the word holiness, we need to have the idea in our mind that God is separate from all sin, that God is perfect in his nature, and that his character is one of flawless moral perfection. And you need to know holiness is the most defining attribute of God's character. It is the only thing in Scripture that is ever repeated in triplicate. And if you've ever heard me preach or teach before, most likely you've heard me say that when the Bible repeats itself, it's making a very strong emphasis. So when Jesus talks and he says, truly, truly, I say to you, that is Jesus getting the attention of his audience of what I'm about to say is really important. And the Bible as a literary device uses repetition to really get our attention wrapped around something that what is being said is of extra importance. And so the only thing in all of Scripture about God that is ever repeated in triplicate is His holiness. And we are told in Revelation chapter 4, verse 8, as well as other passages, but here specifically, that the creatures that are around the throne of God right now as we speak, day and night, they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. The Bible does not say that God is love, love, love. It does not say that God is grace, 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 or God is mercy, mercy, mercy. All those things are true about God. But His most defining attribute is His holiness. Him being completely and totally separate from all sin. And the Bible tells us in passages like Isaiah 59.2, but your iniquities, your sins have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. When speaking about uh, the vileness of our sin and how it looks to a holy God, it says that in Isaiah 64, 6, we have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. And because of how how dreadful our sin is in the eyes of a holy God, we get passages like Psalm 96.9, which say, Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. That when we as sinners look upon and try to grasp the holiness of God, it should actually make us tremble before Him. Because God is so distinct and so separate from us. I had this moment this week, my family and I, we went to vacation the Panhandle up in Destin. And... um, my own reading of the scriptures had me in Psalm 77, 16. And it says, When the waters saw you, O Lord, 
When the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. And I found it very fitting that as I was on the beach and the waves were crashing down, I just had this thought and I said, you know, I, it seems from this passage, you could imagine the depths of the ocean, the, the depths of the sea. And I don't know if you ever think about that. Like if, if, if I ever want to feel really small, I just go near the ocean, right? I mean, you feel really small. Like you just go out there a few feet and within a matter of moments, you could be sucked away and drowned and you are just enveloped in the ocean. And it it has taken great seas, uh, great ships. It has taken great sailors. But you can just imagine from the picture here in Psalm 77, 16, that the oceans that could envelop the entire mass of land that exists on our planet, they look up and they see God in all of His holiness. And according to that passage, they tremble. And in their trembling of seeing God in all of His holiness, all of that rumbling in the deep is what causes the waves to lap up on the ocean. It is just the furthering of that and coming to its extent and crashing upon the shore. And that was just a profound thought I had this moment that as the deep waters, they tremble at the sight of God. And the next time, maybe when you're on the beach and you're seeing those waves lap up, you will think about the deep waters looking up at the holiness of God and those waves crashing. They exist because they tremble at the sight of His holiness. This brings us to what I think is probably the most overlooked part of the entire Jonah story, especially as we see it here in chapter 3, 1 through 5. You have to imagine the condition of Jonah as he is walking up to the people of Nineveh. Now, there's some debate about how long um, it took him to get to the city. Was he just right there at the shore or did he, did he take a few days journey to get into the city? But you have to imagine this guy who has been uh, soaking in the gastric juices of a great fish for three days. Can you just get in your mind what you think Jonah looks like? His hair covered in other rotting fish parts that this great fish has swallowed. His clothes being stained and tattered. I mean, could you imagine what he smelled like? I mean, you, 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 can, you know the smell of throw up, right? You know the smell of vomit. You have been sitting in gastric juices for three days. And you now are walking up to this people. I mean, the sight and the smell of this guy must have been horrendous. No wonder everyone repented, right? I mean, it's just kind of like, oh my gosh, what in the world is walking? I mean, it is horrible. And so what you see in this, I think, is this beautiful picture of this vile, disgusting representation of sin, right? And so now the people of Nineveh have this representation of what their sin looks like before a sovereign and a holy God. But what they also have is this incredible picture of mercy. Because here is one of God's own prophets who was intentionally and willfully 
disobedient, but yet this God had an incredible mercy upon Jonah, not to to extinguish his life, but to give him another chance. And so when this prophet walks up and calls them to repent of their sin, they have this, at at the same time, this beautiful picture, I mean, this horrible picture of the vileness of their sin, but this beautiful picture of mercy. And now this same mercy is being offered to them. And so what we have seen so far, we have seen God's part in this equation, right? We have seen God in His sovereignty. We have seen God in His holiness. We've seen God also uh, in His mercy, which we're about to tap into just a little bit deeper. But we've also seen Jonah finally become faithful and do what God, I don't want to say faithful, he's become obedient to do what God has called him to do. And we have seen the Ninevites repent and turn from their sin. And now we're about to see what happens when people experience the mercy of God. I think one of the two of the terms we often use interchangeably yet aren't the same thing are the terms grace and mercy. And so I want to clearly define for you what these two terms are. So I think it will bring you a little bit better understanding in the future. When we are talking about being on the sin side of the ledger, having sinned against God, here is how I would define these two terms. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. Let me repeat that for you because this would help when I had the visual up here on the screen. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. Now let me illustrate it. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 says it's by Grace, you have been saved through faith. This is a gift of God, not of your own works, so that no one can boast. God gives you faith. In giving you faith, you also receive Christ. You also receive salvation. You don't deserve to get this. God freely gives it to you. But on the other side, what you do deserve because of your sin is consequences for your sin, punishment for your sin. And so mercy is not getting you not getting you what you do deserve. And so in this moment, the people realize that Jonah has not gotten what he deserved in his rebellion against God. And also God is giving them an opportunity to not get what they deserve for their vile and evil treatment of people and their vile and evil treatment and sinning against God. And so they see that they have an opportunity to experience great mercy. And so Jonah exhibits great mercy. And what you have to understand is that great mercy requires great sin. And I think this is one of the detriments for us as followers of Jesus today, that we fail to grasp this idea of talking about just how vile sin is when we are sharing the gospel with people. Because we we want to soft pedal sin 
and not make people think they're as bad as maybe the scripture describes. And so therefore, um, they don't really grasp the extent of the mercy that's been granted to them, and they don't feel this. But the Bible tells us in a parable of Jesus that he who has been forgiven much loves much. And I think if we want to see people with a more effective experience of repentance and walking in salvation, we can't be afraid to present their sin to them as God describes it on the front end. And we don't do this because I think we're afraid of offending people. And But yet when you realize that salvation is totally in the hand of God, you don't have to worry about how much you offend them with how offensive their sin is before a holy God, right? And this is how Jesus talks about it, because Jesus uses really strong words about sin that many times we are very, very, very uncomfortable with. Because right now, um, you're probably thinking to yourself, well, like, because if I was to describe your friends who aren't believers as evil, you'd be like, no, they're not evil. Like, they may not be the best person, you know, but they're not evil. But yet the Bible, when it talks about our sin, uses it as evil. And, and so the question is, well, how do we get to that place? That, you know, because we would think about, you know, mass murder as evil. Like the, the, the guy who killed the, the people at the massage parlors. Just like, like we, would, we have no problem saying that is evil. We can all agree that was an evil act committed against fellow image bearers. But for me to tell a white lie to my friend because I don't want to hurt their feelings, for me to covet on Instagram or on social media, wishing I had someone else's life, that's not evil. But yet the Bible says it does. So let me give you what I think is probably the best illustration that's always helped me the most to see how um, how sin can be considered evil, though it may not seem it on a human level, okay? So let's imagine after the sermon today, uh, Pastor Kevin comes up to me and says, Daniel, your sermon really stunk. And I, uh, in my unsanctified state, punched Kevin in the nose. Kevin, though I'm slightly bigger than him, he's a scrappy little fella, he'd punch back, right? And somebody would come separate us, and then we would do like guys have done for all the centuries. We would eventually get over it, and we would move on with our lives. But that would be the end of the punches being thrown back and forth. Now, let's imagine that I was still really offended and bothered what by Kevin had said later on in the day, and I was walking over near Gainesville Police Department, and an officer was, I was passing by an officer, and he said, good afternoon, sir. And just needing to get the anger out of me, I punched that police officer right in the nose. What is going to happen to me? I am going to get arrested and spend a, at least one night in jail, I can assure you. So let's imagine I have still not gotten over this and I am still offended by Kevin's comment on my sermon that once I get out of jail, um, I take a trip over to the Middle East um, where there are some clerics and some Ayatollah and some leaders over there. And I somehow got near one of them and I was still angry and I punched one of them in the nose. What is going to happen to me? 
dead, right? Like they aren't going to ask. This is not going to be a conversation we have. There will be no second chances, execution on the spot. And we all understand how this illustration works. Well, let's just imagine, again, you were to then punch God in the nose, right? So sin being the equivalent of punching God in the nose, this leads us to God's judgment over our sin. Now, in all four examples, the exact same thing happened, but yet there was a difference. And that difference is what? It's the authority and the position of the person. But yet we all understand that there should be greater degrees of consequence, even though the same action happened in all four scenarios. That was someone else, the punch, it was a fight and it was over with. With the policeman, you went to jail because it was a greater authority. With the leader of the Middle East, it was death. And we would all understood this is what would happen. So how much more something that's moved beyond the human level to the king of the universe who is perfectly holy, this now establishes kind of a baseline for us of just how severe the consequences of sin are for us. And this is why Jesus can say any and all sin is evil. And so if you go and read in Mark chapter 7, uh, right before verse 23, Jesus gives this list. And in this list, he talks about things like sexual immorality. He talks about idolatry. He talks about covetousness. He talks about just these general sins that we see in our everyday lives. And Jesus says, all of these things are evil. And he says this evil comes from what is inside of a person. And so I say this because I think much to our detriment in the proclamation of the gospel, we want to soft pedal the sin side of evil or the evil side of sin to people so that then when they become followers of Jesus, we have not given them the opportunity to experience just how great this grace and this mercy is that has been delivered to them through the work of Jesus Christ. And so in Jonah, we see this visible and living example of the great mercy of God. He had sinned greatly, yet God was greatly merciful. And the story of this mercy only works if there is a realization of how horrible our sin is and how great the chasm is between God and us. And in this, we see the entire city of Nineveh repent. I'm going to save you and not read you the last five verses to hopefully speed this up, because I'm sure you're colder than I am, and I am freezing up here. Okay? <clears throat> so, the entire city repents. This city... If you read it, this city, I love this part of the story. I think it's one of the funniest parts of the whole Bible is that they even put the animals in sackcloth and ashes, right? This is how complete and total the repentance is. It is not just for the people. Like our animals are bad. Our animals are evil. We are going to show God how committed we are to this entire thing because we are going to put the animals in sackcloth and ashes. Up to this point, I've given you um, two triplicates, right? I've said salvation is God's part, my part, and their part. 
We've done sovereign God, holy God, and merciful God. I want to close with one last triplicate as we close out this message. And I want to say this. Salvation is from God, by God, and to God. We do not like to think about the wrath side of God. But yet the Bible clearly declares over and over and over for those who do not turn from their sin, for those who continue to walk in their sin, that those people are the enemies of God. Those people are at enmity with God. Those people are separated with God. And that one day God will pour out his wrath on those people for all eternity for their sin against him. This should increase the urgency with which we attempt to share the gospel with those that God has put into our organic spheres of influence. This, I hope, encourages you over the next week and in the coming weeks to really press into your prayer life and into the lives of your one attempting to share the gospel with them. For this is the reality that awaits them if they do not turn from their sin. Also remember that salvation is by God. All the pressure is off you sharing the gospel. There is nothing that you are going to say or forget to say that prevents someone from becoming a follower of Jesus. You walk into every single one of those circumstances and situations fully knowing and understanding that God is sovereign over that heart and that life, your job is simply to proclaim the goodness of God and the goodness of Jesus and to call them to repent. I'll just go ahead and put it out there. If you have never read the book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, it's about 100 pages. In my opinion, it's the best book ever written on the subject. It will bring all of this into crystal clear clarity and focus, and it will help you out so much as you attempt to share the gospel with people. It will get rid of so many of the nerves, but you've got to remember this salvation is totally by the hand of God. And what I pray is the good news for you to receive today and the good news for your one to receive in the future is that this salvation is to God. It is an amazing and wonderful thing that God himself saves us to himself. That the Bible declares that for those who are the children of God, for those who have experienced the salvation, God is going to spend all eternity pouring out to you the immeasurable riches of his kindness toward you. And I don't know where you are today, what circumstances you find yourself in, what situation it is, but if you are a follower of Jesus, I pray that you would leave here with an incredible comfort today knowing that everything that is going on, every place that God is sovereignly directing your life, it all ends up at the same place. With you being reconciled to God for all eternity to experience His, his glory and His goodness in the new heavens and the new earth forever and ever.